Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Pryor. And I'm Stephen Higgins. And this is Episode 7 of Apocryphal Australia. And Stephen, why don't we dive straight into the mailbag? I think that's a good idea, Michael. Let's do that. Well, we had an email from the curator of a museum of farm fencing wire, but it was so boring I didn't manage to finish reading it, so that was a bit of a dud one there. Another more promising email came from the Australian Democratic People's Republican Green Leftist Conservative Constitutional Monarchy Party, asking if we'd be able to help them define what the hell they stand for. So I I kind of thought we might have a look at them at some stage. Good idea. And finally, received an email from Mr Neil Framlington from Larkey in South Australia, who's the founder of the Framlington Literary Prize, one I haven't heard of before, I must admit. Now, of itself, this isn't terribly interesting, but he revealed that the same person has won this prestigious prize every year since its inception back in 1962. Now, that got my attention until it was revealed that the writer in question is one Mr Neil Framlington, which seemed to kill any interest. Nothing suspicious there at all. No, no. We're getting an awful lot of correspondence from from people promoting themselves, I think. And funny you should mention that, Stephen, because I have an item here that's come across my desk, and it's from one Daisy Elmore of Horsevale West in Queensland. And, well, she starts well with, Stephen and Michael, you two are obviously experts. Now, I'm blushing here, Daisy, and I need to point out that we don't claim to be experts. If other people want to think of us as such, well, that's up to them. But we're just plugging away as enthusiastic amateurs, trying to bring you thought-provoking and intriguing stories from the past. Now, Stephen, Daisy does go on, however. She says, you two are obviously experts, but not everyone is. And I'd like to help them through my book, How to Be an Expert, which you really should promote on your podcast. So, yes, people are coming out of the woodwork asking for our imprimatur, if you like. But thanks, Daisy. We really can't. Uh, even though you give us some tantalising snippets. <laughs> Can I read some of these out, Stephen? I'm always up for hearing snippets, Michael. Well, apparently there's a whole chapter on how to speak loudly in restaurants. I think that, that one's probably quite well known from my experience. Oh, okay, and there's another chapter called Don't Let Facts Get In Your Way. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> and there's another one on the importance of self-importance and one titled Never Back Down, Never Surrender. Is she, she, she's not a politician or something, is she? Mm. Look, after perusing all this, I'm afraid we're going to decline your offer, Daisy, to promote your book. We at Apocryphal Australia prefer experts to have actual subject knowledge and something more than bluster, but we might be the odd ones out here. Now it's time for us to dive into our work, ladies and gentlemen and gentlefolk everywhere. So, Stephen, what's your first story? Well, I was going to say another interesting one, Michael, but they're all interesting. 
I guess some are just more interesting than others if we take a fancy to the, their backstory. I'm going to talk today about uh, Adeline Strife. Now, some people are born to greatness. Others have greatness thrust upon them. Adeline Strife, on the other hand, tended to pursue it. Aware of the fact that it was difficult for a woman to achieve success in her own right, and aware of the adage that behind every great man is a woman, Adeline sought to get behind as many great men as she could. Noted for her string of marriages to the rich and famous, Adeline soon entrenched herself in the social set of Sydney, Melbourne, and indeed the world. Adeline was born in Deadpan, a small farming town on the outskirts of Sydney. Her parents, Sid and Gladys, were proud working-class people who wanted nothing more than the best for their bright, pretty daughter. Upon telling her this, they were devastated when young Adeline suggested that putting her up for adoption might be a good start. Adeline was shunned by her peers when young, and she was accused of thinking that she was better than everyone else. Adeline denied this charge and stated that it was not a matter of simply believing she was better. She was better. Tiring of the boredom of life in a country town, Adeline fled deadpan for the bright lights of Kipper, a slightly larger town some 30 miles up the line. Here she made a name for herself, but the charges were later dropped when the mayor was discovered to be on Adeline's list of clients. On the run yet again, Adeline soon found herself with inside of Sydney. She took rooms at the King's Trust, a small hostelry in the suburbs, and began to, to climb her way up the social ladder. She started, let's say, put it nicely, um, seeing young men. Her suitors at this stage included such luminaries as Johnson Aarons, Sir Henry Butt, Orville Cleague, Thomas Dougal and Yancey Ewing. The slightly predatory nature of Adeline's pursuit of these men and others only came to light when the researchers of this podcast were granted access to her papers. There we found Adeline's own copy of Who's Who in Sydney, and it appears that Adeline worked her way through this time alphabetically. After her divorce from Zachary Zuma, Adeline fell into a period of despondency that lasted some three hours. She soon met and fell for Aaron Abensimum, and she seemed her old self again. Another series of relationships followed, and it was only when Adeline turned 30 that she suddenly burst upon the international social scene, for it was then that someone gave her a copy of Who's Who International. Adeline did not look back from that moment. She became the confidant of politicians, the advisor to royalty. She told the King and Mrs Wallace Simpson to go for it as it will all be okie-dokie, and the friend of various sheiks, chiefs, elders and leaders of men. She was particularly fond of leaders of men. In 1967, she wrote her memoirs and she became immeasurably rich despite, perhaps because of the fact, that they were never published. In her later years, Adeline spent many hours on the phone ringing up talkback radio shows and whinging about everything. Stephen, I've been forgetting to do this, so here we go. Well done on a superb bit of research there. I keep thinking that she had a very sort of modern outlook, charting her own course, not being dependent, in fact making other people dependent. Well done, Adeline. A woman before her time. Michael, you've looked into another location this week, the Halumbi Caves. They sound fantastic. Do tell us all about them. I've been looking at lots and lots of maps, Stephen, and the Halumbi Caves practically jumped out at me. So here we go. 
the little-known Holumbi Caves lie 20 kilometres southeast of Mount Gambia, South Australia. While not as spectacular as the nearby Janolan Caves, they are nevertheless important for having been the hiding place for Australia's only gang of Zen bushrangers. The Shining Moon Gang terrorised the district in the 1880s in a quest for social justice and enlightenment. They stayed well away from more populous areas as they didn't want to be in conflict with other gangs whose aims were more monetary. Their leader, Mildred Grasshopper Oon, set the operating principles for the gang. Their duty, as as she saw it, was to ride hard, bail up travellers and engage them in a session of thought-provoking dialectic and calming parables. Her brothers, Garrison and Kerrison, were involved in the gang from the beginning and it soon swelled to four members with the arrival of Garth Flandel, a crack shot and humble novitiate. The Shining Moon Gang's reign of terror and tranquillity resulted in many dishevelled travellers arriving in town wondering whether trees felled in the forest made any noise at all. Others immediately inquired about the nearest angling shop since they were now set for life as they'd been taught to fish. One unfortunate spent a month in hospital confused by the prospect of one hand clapping. The Halumbi Caves were the Shining Moon Gang's hideout and were eventually well fitted with a tea room, meditation chamber and temporary paper walls. Instead of a warning bell, Grasshopper Oon insisted on a small gong for fear of upsetting local wildlife. A stone rack for sandals just inside the entrance of the cave can still be seen. The Shining Moon Gang disappeared sometime in the early 1890s. Rumours were that they went on a pilgrimage and never came back. But others insist that they simply achieved transcendence. More rumours are available at the gift shop. The Halumbi Caves are also noted in some circles for the unique fungus Calvatia verdii that is found in and around the small entrance area. Only the second musical fungus found in Australia, emitting a distinct C-sharp when squashed. Well, so it was a very enlightened reign of terror. Very different bush rangers. And I'd, like a lot of these things, Stephen, I'd like to know more. And simply because we've proffered this story right here and now, it doesn't mean I'm going to stop doing some investigating and probing to see if any more wonderful facts come to light about the Shining Moon Gang. Oh, I'd like to see if there's any more musical fungi out there of different notes. <laughs> we could imagine an orchestra of different musical fungi. Stephen, what have you got next for us? Next, a location. In fact, a small town. Located some 30 kilometres east of Nurgle in the copper region of Queensland, Klemp is the financial and social hub of the mining region. The township sits beneath the imposing vista of Two Tree Hill. The actual trees have long since been cut down, chipped and exported to Japan. But the local council, based in Klemp, has seen fit to supply two extremely lifelike plastic trees, which look almost like the originals. People often wonder what's so special about Two Tree Hill. Anyway, the township of Klemp is home to a burgeoning kelp industry, which was set up by the business council of the local Shire Authority. A large amount of fresh seawater is flown in daily to supply the prospering kelp farms, the only ones of their type situated away from the coastal locations usually favoured by this sort of business. Mayor John Lerne says, and I quote, we like to push the envelope and redefine what is possible here in Clemp. 
Um, he goes on to say, we aren't your normal tourist trap with a lot of glitz and no real substance. We aim to provide a total tourist package here in the Riviera of the interior. If that means importing fresh seawater to keep the kelp farms going, then so be it. Klemp also has a fine array of parks and gardens where the tired visitor is welcome to rest and recuperate for a very small fee. The handmade cast iron benches and tables are hand wrought from free range ore harvested fresh in the region and many a visitor has commented on them. One of the attractions of Klemp, apart from Two Tree Hill, is the continental romance that has been injected into the local shopping precinct area. Many world-class shops and boutiqueries are to be found along the main boulevard. The international traveller will feel right at home, be they from Venice, London, Paris, or indeed any other world-class metropolis. Yes, Klemp has it all. The finest eateries sit cheek by jowl with some of the swishest clotheries and footweararies in the world. The picturesque oldie-worldy charm of Klemp will delight even the most seasoned and hardened of travellers with its wondrous array of attractions right on the doorstep. For those discerning tourists who desire a little more out-of-the-way adventure and excitement, Klemp is the gateway to a magical wonderland of the Queensland hinterland. Although often described as merely smog, the fairy mist that lingers over the slag heaps of the local copper mines provide an alluring allure to the jaded visitor and they haven't forgotten the young'uns. Looking for a little excitement? Hey, cowabunga dudes. After the rigours of downhill cardboard box rides on the slag heaps, known locally as slagging, why not take advantage of Klemp's nightlife? The range of nightclubs is extensive, and right next door to it is Captain Howie's Fish and Chips, supplying a range of international seafood that will tempt even the most furry palate. After something a little more adult... Why not visit Chanel's? It's just a short stroll off the main street behind the old knackery. Here you can have some adult fun with the friendly girls. Some of Australia's most beautiful women have appeared in advertisements for this international standard escort agency. If it's class and sophistication you're looking for, then you'll find it at Chanel's. Life's free since 1998. Yes, Clamp has it all. Well, most of it anyway. Clamp your passport to international fun and excitement right here in Oz. That's... Why have I never heard of Clemp, Stephen? That's that's my fault, I suppose. <laughs> well, you just don't get out enough, Michael. Obviously. Now, while I was listening, I was trying to do my best to come up with some slogans for Clemp. Probably doesn't need them, but let me run these by you, Stephen. How's this one? Clemp, look no further. That's not too bad. Clemp... It's got more than enough. Yes. Oh, and I saved the best to last. Clemp. It's Clemptastic. <laughs> now, I like that one. I might, I might get onto the mayor and, and, and run it past him. I did have a chat to some locals, and, and they, they thought the biggest selling point of the, uh, the town was just the name. Clemp. Yeah, well, say no more. Say no more. Now, Lynn, I understand you have an artistic personage for us next, Michael. The arts world always throws up some interesting people. And I seem to be digging into that pile of interesting people and rolling them out. And today, I've got Canterbury Jones, 1900 to 1987. Considered by many to be the finest sculptor Australia has produced... I might read that again. Considered by some to be the finest... 
how about considered by a few to be the finest sculptor Australia has produced, Canterbury Jones was born and raised in Perth. His early life produced little evidence of any artistic talent, and this fact remained a constant throughout his life. In 1915, Canterbury Jones gained employment with Twine and Sons, a sawmill that operated in the Jarrah forests of southern West Australia. Sawmilling at the time was nothing like today's high-tech operations and had been described by Ron Twine, the owner of the yard where Jones was employed, as Whitland on a large scale. It was during a visit to the area by a local art critic and heliographer, Desper Lund, that Jones's talents, such as they were, came to light. As Lund fossicked among the offcuts, he noticed that many of the cast-off lumps of timber had been cunningly fashioned into marvellous shapes. He gathered many of the pieces together and loaded them into his van. Upon his return to his suburban home, he began to burn them on his wood fire. This might have been the end of the story had not John Klinderman, an artist of Lund's acquaintance, seen something in the pieces of wood other than combustibility. Ascertaining the origin of these pieces from a bewildered Lund, Klinderman raced to the forest and sawmill where Jones had what some would call his studio. Klinderman then ran around to the back of Lund's house and retrieved the remaining sculptures from Lund's woodpile and raced back to the forest again. He found Jones creating a large abstract piece from a 20-foot log and immediately offered to buy it for £100. £100 a what? was Jones's famous pithy reply. That piece, Log Section, now resides in the National Gallery of Australia. It's a large wooden beam propping up a tin shed around the back. Under the guidance of Clinderman, Jones went on to produce a series of artworks that are still considered the finest retaining more frames in existence. His series of miniatures, called Toothpick Array, is commonly acknowledged as groundbreaking while his take on ordinary kitchen utensils was hailed as stirring. The mammoth installation he called the woodpile is now known as Monument to Burnability Number 1 and was highly sought after by the US Metropolitan Museum of Art and the UK Tate Modern, but was sadly lost after an unexpected termite infestation. Desper Lund went on to become Australia's foremost art critic. He always referred to Canterbury Jones as this country's greatest supplier of firewood. John Clinderman went on to become our thinnest artist. He still practices his art in his Blue Mountain studio. After becoming fed up with what he called the woodiness of his medium, Canterbury Jones abandoned it and took a sideways turn to metal-based art, producing Scrap 1, Scrap 2 and his masterpiece, Co-Mingled Waste, which won the Wheelie Bin Award at the Australian Recyclers Art Exhibition in 1986. Canterbury Jones died in 1987, and his ashes were scattered in an ironic accident when the crematorium delivery van collided with a wooden truck filled with scrap metal. Artists, you got to love them. Mm, and Vale Canterbury Jones. We've had some stirring stuff so far this episode, Stephen. What are you going to top it off with? Well, the stirring stuff continues, Michael. This one is all about Annabel Ritter, 1890 to 1932. Annabel Ritter was born in Perth and educated at the Catholic College for Wayward Girls. Annabel was neither Catholic nor wayward when she first enrolled, but a severe talking to from Sister Anathema soon changed all that. 
Annabelle changed from a demure young lady into one of the most feisty women you could imagine. At the age of 26, Annabelle owned many businesses in Western Australia and had the ear and various other body parts of many of the state politicians. She gave up her personal fortune and unsavoury lifestyle when she found Jesus in the desert. Jesus Spinoza, a Spanish prospector and purveyor of quinces, couldn't believe his luck when Annabelle told him that she wanted to devote her life to him. It was only after he requested an intimate embrace that Annabelle realised her mistake and ran off into the desert. Thus began one of the most intriguing stories of hardship, endurance and good old-fashioned willpower ever told in the annals of this great country. Annabelle, on the other hand, pressed on with a trek across the continent. With no money, no spare clothes, no water and no brains, Annabelle decided she would walk all the way to the other side of the continent, even if it killed her. She shunned all offers of rides in trucks, food, water and psychiatric advice, preferring to rely on pig-headedness and an unsteady grasp of geography and distances. It killed her. However, she did manage to cross much of the continent and gave European names to many of the rocky outcrops, rivers and other geological features that she encountered. We only know this because she scratched the names into rocks near each of the features, and these were later found by explorers after they themselves had named the features after themselves. Annabelle's desiccated remains were found just one mile from an early inland township, and Annabelle's story remains one of the most touching and inspiring, although somewhat downbeat ending-wise, and contains a fine lesson in how to cross the continent on foot. Get a map. A monument stands in mute testimony to the life of Annabelle Ritter. It stands lonely and forlorn on the main street of the tiny Western Australian town where she began her great quest to be the first woman to traverse the continent on foot. It is, in fact, right in the middle of the road, just outside the pub from where she began. It contains another lesson for the would-be walkers of the continent. Look left, look right, look left again. Stephen, I'm really pleased that you're giving prominence to some of these women from the past. They deserve it. They do indeed. They've added an incredible amount of of richness to our history, I think. Now, Australia seems to have had more than its fair share of disasters, Michael, and you're about to enlighten us about another one. We can't shy away from this aspect of Australia's history as a harsh and forbidding land, and of course some of the disasters are entirely down to us. And this one in particular... It's the Great Hanslope Vinegar Flood of 1947. In 1947, one of the most bizarre incidents in Australia's forgotten history occurred in the small town of Hanslope, some 10 kilometres from Newcastle, New South Wales. Hanslope was a small community. Its population of 800 was variously employed in agriculture, petty theft and mail-order extortion part-time but the primary industry in the town was the Hanslope Vinegar Works. A model of its type, the Hanslope Vinegar Works supplied most of New South Wales with quality table vinegar, but also bulk processing vinegar for the pickling factories, which had sprung up in the area. In addition, the Hanslope Vinegar Works was the main supplier of industrial-strength acetic acid to chemical companies up and down the eastern seaboard. In 1947, some 600 of the town's population worked in the Hanslope Vinegar Works, and many more were indirectly involved in the enterprise. Perched on top of Hanslope Hill, overlooking the main street, it was, needless to say, the mainstay of the town. 
The manager of the Hanslope Vinegar Works, Philip Nobby Ferguson, was de facto leader of the town and had twice been voted mayor. In 1945, he began the enormously successful Hanslope Vinegar Festival, which drew people from all over to participate in what he called the joys of sourness. December 19, 1947, was a scorchingly hot day in Hanslope. A baking northwest wind had begun early in the day and dust and sweat were in plentiful supply. The vinegar works was operating at full capacity in the pre-Christmas rush. Later, it was estimated that over 250,000 litres of vinegar was held in barrels, storage fats, fermentation towers and holding ponds, enough to fill 10 Olympic-sized swimming pools. And this even though the usefulness of filling Olympic swimming pools with vinegar had long been touted by the management of the Hanslope Vinegar Works, nothing had actually come of that plan. The events that led to the vinegar deluge have never been fully established. The Royal Commission, convened after the disaster, listed several possible causes, lax safety requirements, poor quality cooperage and a shift in the Earth's magnetic field. It is enough to say that 11.28, a torrent of vinegar burst forth from the Hanslope Vinegar Works and roared down Hanslope Hill into the town. Observers spoke of a huge frothing wave of vinegar, well over two metres in height. It cascaded down the hill, uprooting trees and bushes and carrying off livestock. The fumes rolling off the vinegar caused immense eye and lung irritation in those lucky enough not to be swept up by the flood. In a miracle of biblical proportions, no one was killed. Several people were swept off their feet and carried for well over a kilometre until the wave of vinegar met Hansope Creek, but all were rescued, with only minor bruises and scratches, which really stung a lot. Most of the buildings in the town were damaged irreparably by the force of the sudden flood. The vinegar works itself was wrecked beyond any hope of reconstruction. The townside reeked of vinegar for months, and the slow disintegration of the town dates from this time. Today, there is little left of Hanslope apart from the shattered and rusty remains of the once-proud Hanslope Vinegar Works on top of Hanslope Hill. What a sad, sad thing to have happened. It's, in some ways, it's a testament to the folly of humanity. Well, I suppose it isn't really. I mean, making vinegar, that's not really folly. But uh, it's what some people would claim. Well, I think some people, some insensitive people would, would probably say the uh, the townsfolk were left in something of a pickle. <laughs> All right. Uh, that deserves a... <laughs> and that's all we've got time for in Episode 7 of Apocryphal Australia. Now, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. And I've been Michael Pryor. And I've been Stephen Higgins. And we'll see you next time. Farewell. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders 
get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So, until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay? Okay.